I've been asked why I don't preach a ton of, quote, salvation messages. I talk about God's grace a lot. I talk about God's mercy a lot. It's in like, if you go back and listen to them all, uh, like three quarters of my sermons, I probably mention God's grace in some way, shape, or form. Because we need to remind, be reminded about it every single moment of every single day. But I don't really preach salvation messages very often. And the reason for that, and they ask me, and the reason I give for it is because church was not made for the unbeliever. Church was made for the believer. That's not to say unbelievers shouldn't feel welcome in a church. Not does not to say they shouldn't feel the love of Christ exuding every throughout of every person and through everything we do. But church was made to grow believers. If you look throughout Scripture, that's just what it was for. It was believers getting together, not unbelievers. So I don't preach a salvation message very often because while we can grow from it, there are other things we need to grow through as well. However, when we're going through a book, and it just so happens that it's a salvation message in that part of the book, we're going to do a salvation message. And we all need to be reminded of it anyway, of what Christ did for us 2,000 some odd years ago. So if you're ever like, why doesn't that pastor preach more about Christ and his salvation and our salvation through him? That's why. So let's read it. First Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. And if you didn't catch on, this is going to have to do with salvation. But that's all right because we need to be reminded anyway. First Peter 3, 18 through 22. It reads, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having, put to, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Correspond to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Number one, number one, Christ died. That shouldn't come as a shock to you for those of you trying to fill in the notes. I don't know about you, when I, was, when I was younger and I had a pastor that did the same thing, I always try to figure out what it was going to be before he got there, and then I grade myself. This would have been an easy one. Christ died. Christ died for you and for me. I love this because he says right there, once for all, the just for the unjust. You see, you and I, we didn't deserve it. To, to, to be able to go to heaven. We don't deserve love. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve holiness. We don't deserve righteousness. And I'm here to tell you that wasn't just before you got saved. That's right now. You will never deserve it. Which means you never could have gotten it. Unless somebody willingly chooses to give it to you. And Christ did. The just for the unjust, fill it in, the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the unholy. He did it because you couldn't. One of my favorite mental images, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you, if not all of you, have seen this idea, right, is, is God on the one side of a chasm and you're on the other, and there's no way across it. You can't jump it, you can't build a bridge, you can't build a ladder you can push over, there's no log that's going to fall, there is no way across this chasm. 
And then, of course, in the next picture, you see a cross has, has, has bridged it. It's not your cross. It's nothing that you did. Yes, we're commanded to take up a cross daily and follow him, but it's not that cross that saves you and I. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust. He showed grace and mercy when we didn't deserve it, when there's nothing we could have done to deserve it. No actions. We're going to talk about it here in a little bit, but baptism, that's not going to do it. Reading your Bible, that's not going to do it. Doing a daily devotional, that's not going to do it. It's only through Christ who died for you and for me. And we just celebrated it this morning, what he did for us on the cross 2,000 some odd years ago. And why did he do it? So that he might bring us to God. You see, God in his infinite wisdom and infinite love said, I will allow them to choose. They will originally choose to go against me, which means I'm going to have to provide a way for them to choose to come to me. So I'll do that. Christ died because he looked at it and said, this gap can't be bridged. I've got to do it. He was beaten and whipped so much so that his own mother can't recognize him anymore because he loved you. 2,000 years later, he loved you enough. And if you were the only person that was going to accept his gift, he would have done it anyway because one was enough. He did it for everybody, but if one was going to choose, that would have been enough. So Christ died for you and for me. Number two, and there's no notes on this one. There's no, there's no fill in the blank on this one. Uh, because it's not a, we're not, it's not a deep uh, theological idea necessarily. Right? I don't need you to take this home and apply it to your life. Number two, spirits now in prison. Basically what I'm going to do is tell you what the three major ideas for what this means are. You can decide on your own, but I will tell you what I personally believe and what most scholars who read and go through this passage believe as well. It's kind of confusing because he says, so he dies in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That word prison is translated elsewhere as Sheol. First off, let's get this out of the way. There is a difference between Sheol and the lake of fire, a big difference. Both are places of, of punishment. However, the lake of fire is far worse. And it is the ending place for Satan and his demons and every soul that does not ex accept Christ as the Lord and Savior. But the basic understanding through Scripture is that there is no one in the lake of fire as of right now. That takes place after the millennial reign of Christ. Some people don't believe that the lake of fire even technically exists yet. That's neither here nor there. Doesn't really matter. It will exist if it doesn't. So what this is referring to is, and this is the first idea, the first two ideas deal with this. That The first theological idea is that Christ, when he dies, descends into Sheol and gives the spirits there, the souls there, a second chance. Says, hey, follow me and you can come home. Most scholars don't believe that. And neither do I. 
they had their chance. Yes, they did not have Christ as Lord and Savior to follow or to accept. They had the, the, the various uh, animals and stuff that you had to sacrifice and, stu- and such. But I don't believe that you get a second chance after you die. Once you've died, you've made your choice. It's the finality. It's the end. The second idea is that he descends, but he doesn't offer a second chance. I hold a little bit to this idea. Why? Let me tell you why. The Bible says that Christ took my place, not just in death, but he took my punishment. He took it himself, which means he had to take my whole punishment himself, which means he he had to go down into Sheol and experience it down there as Christ. Now you might say, Pastor, Pastor, doesn't it say in Luke and Matthew and John and, and, and the other ones, you know, in Mark, that he tells the thief on the cross, well, today you'll be with me in paradise. How could he go down into Sheol and also be in paradise with this guy? There's a couple ideas on that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. My personal idea is that it's more of the me, Trinity, me, you're with me in heaven, with God the Father. But I believe he had to descend. Now, I don't believe he offers a second chance. But I believe he had to descend to take my punishment. The third idea for this specific passage, and the one that most scholars believe, is that he is referring to not him, not, not Christ, but Noah. He's saying that Noah is preaching to those in his time. So thousands of years ago, when God says, hey, Noah, build an ark, And it takes him about a hundred years to build said ark. He spends those hundred years preaching to the people around him as well. While they mock him. As he's there pounding the nails into the wood. He's going, hey, the rain's coming. There's only one way. Nobody listened. Except for his sons, his wife, and his son's wives. That's where the eight persons come from. But that is what most scholars believe that this specific passage is talking about. This specific verse is that it's not talking about Christ himself in that instance, but Noah. And they pull that from the following few verses where it says, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah. They're saying it's not a metaphor, it's literally those in the days of Noah. And then it says at the end of that, eight persons were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. Uh Uh-oh. Number three, baptism saves? Question mark. Ellipsis. I love ellipsises, in case you wanted to know. I put them in a lot of stuff. No. Baptism does not save. And notice what Peter says immediately thereafter. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Now, am I saying that when you get baptized, right, whether it be in this baptismal pool in the Susquehanna River, like I was in the uh, Wolf Lake, like a few of our young people were last year, or wherever it was that you were baptized... Is basically that a bath? No, it's not. But Peter is kind of saying it's as good as one when it comes to your salvation. It doesn't do anything, but it's a symbol, and it's this incredible symbol. We, did, we, we used the one symbol today for Christ, uh, uh, what he did for us, and then baptism is the other one, right? When you go down underneath that water, it symbolizes you dying. And when you come back up, it symbolizes you being resurrected. But it also kind of symbolizes you being washed clean. When you come back up, those pristine, blood-washed, white robes being put on you. That Christ, that God now sees when he looks at you. 
Of course, we know, and I'll say it again. I want to reiterate this as many times as I can. Baptism does not save you. There is no act or work that will save you, but it symbolizes it. That's one of the reasons it's so important to get baptized. It's one of the reasons that Christ commands us to be baptized when we become a Christian. So baptism doesn't save, but it's this vivid picture of what he does. And I don't know about you, I love communion. And I, I love eating together with fellowship and stuff like that, but baptisms are my favorite thing. Whether uh, last year when I got the chance to baptize people, that's an incredible feeling. But also, just sitting there and watching somebody get baptized and knowing they're making this public declaration of their faith in Christ. Oh, it's so incredible to me. And they can only do that. Why? Because of point number one. Christ died for them. It all, it all swings around and comes back to that. Baptism's not important. What Christ did, whether he descended and offered a second chance, descended and didn't offer a second chance, or didn't descend at all, doesn't matter unless Christ first died. And he made that choice for you and for me. I know that there are a good number of people in this room who are saved. I know most of you, I'll say decently well, if not fairly well, if not really well. And I firmly believe that the majority of us in here have accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. But I would also be remiss if I didn't recognize the fact that in a room of people this size, there were those that hadn't. Whether you have been in church for 50 years like Millard has, in this church for 50 years like Millard has, whether you just came here today or somewhere in between, you can be deceived too. And maybe you've spent your whole life in church and you go, well, I know everything. I, I know John 3.16 and Jeremiah 29.11 and Philippians 4.13. I can quote all these verses to you. That's great. Do you know what they mean? Have they become your heart knowledge instead of just your head knowledge? Or has Satan deceived you into believing, well, you've been here long enough. You, your grandfather did it. Or, well, you know, it's all right. You did it when you never actually did. Or maybe... You're very much well aware that you're not saved, but you've got to put on the face because you've been coming here long enough that everybody thinks that you are. And you're scared because you don't want to admit, I'm not there. Let me tell you this morning, you're going to be way more scared when you stand before him if you haven't accepted him. And I can't think of anybody in this room right now that's going to go, what? They weren't saved? Well, they better never come back. No. In fact, I look around this room and I only see people that are going to go, welcome to the family. It's such an incredible thing. Or maybe, maybe you fall into that group of people and you know you're not saved and you're not putting out a pretense that you are. Maybe you were brought here this morning by somebody else. Maybe you just, you know, this God thing, it doesn't seem to, to, to compute with you. You'd rather live your life. Isn't Christianity just a whole bunch of rules that I have to follow? If you look at it one way, kind of, but if you look at it the right way, no. I always love the picture. It's two guys standing next to a, a, a fence, right? And uh, you see it from the one angle, and, and the guy goes, well, I just can't do this anymore. This, this shepherd keeps trying to keep us in here. I'm hopping the fence. And the guy goes, no, don't do it. And the guy hops over the fence, and he goes to the next panel, and he goes, it's not a fence. It's a guardrail. 
That's what Christianity is. It's not a fence that holds you in. God is not trying to go, well, you better follow this list of rules, and if you don't, you're right out of here. God goes, listen, I know what's best, and I've put up guardrails to protect you. Trust me. Don't jump over that. And let me tell you this as well. You can't just sit on that guardrail with one, one foot hanging off the edge and one foot on the green. That's not how that works. You're either in the pastures or you're over the cliff. There's no in-between with God. I want to admonish you this morning. Don't wait. You don't know how long you have. I kind of hate to bring it up a little bit, but I don't know if you've been paying attention to the weather, but it sure seems like we're having a bunch of really nasty storms. And not just here, across the whole country. And while we haven't had deaths here, it's just around the corner. One gust of wind and a tree falls on your car, and then you're standing before him, and you've got to answer for your actions and what you did. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, it's not that big a deal. It is. Because your answer of, well, I did good works, that's not going to cut it. Or your answer of, well, I didn't really believe, it's not going to cut it. The only answer that's going to cut it is, that guy up there, he died for me. That's the only answer that's going to cut it. I want to admonish and encourage you this morning. If you have not accepted Christ, whether it be you've been here for 50 years and Satan's deceived you into believing that you are a Christian, and I'm not saying that Miller's not a Christian. I just used him as an example because he's been here 50 years. Whether you have been here shorter than that, and you know you're not a Christian, but you're putting on the front, or whether you know you're not a Christian and you just don't care to put out the front, you're, you're, you're who you want to be. You've got a chance this morning. you got one chance because you don't know what's going to happen. We could get struck by lightning and this building burn right now. Sounds kind of morbid. It is. It would be terrible. But it's possible. You could have a blood clot that you don't know about and you're about to pass out dead. You're only guaranteed the moment that you're in right now. You're not, gonna, you're not guaranteed the next. I'm going to pray some words, and if you have not accepted Christ, I want you to pray those words with me. Now, I'm not saying a prayer is going to save you. Again, it's not your action. It's the heart change. The Bible says you've got you to speak that out, though. The actions aren't what saves you. But if the Holy Spirit has been working on your heart, and he's going, hey, Hey, Christ died for you. Accept the gift. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you you gave your son to die for us. That we can celebrate through communion. We can celebrate through baptism. Though we know those things don't save us, we thank you that you give us them. And right now, God, I'm going to pray for and with anybody that may not have accepted you. I'm going to pray that your spirit, God, is working on their hearts, that they go, I need a Savior, and it's only Christ. And if that's you here this morning, pray with me. You just say, Father God, I know that I need a Savior. I know I've done wrong, and there's no way that I can bridge that gap. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to come into my heart. And be my savior. I recognize I'm not going to be perfect. I recognize this is a journey that I'm going to walk on the rest of my life. But I want you there with me, leading me and guiding me. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for what you did for me. Be my king, be my lord, be my savior.
And now, God, I thank you for the end of this service. I thank you that we get to talk, that we don't talk about it necessarily often. We get to talk about salvation and what you did for us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen and amen.